Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We review the Russian Grand Prix and ask if Mercedes was right to use the dreaded team orders. Russian Grand Prix was all about two words, team and orders, as Mercedes handed a victory that was destined to go to Valtteri Bottas to teammate Lewis Hamilton. As a result, Hamilton now leads Sebastian Vettel in the World Championship by a massive 50 points, with just 125 left to play for. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to evaluate the rights, wrongs and necessities of team orders, first is television's Karun Chandok. Now, Karun, not only are you on Channel 4's excellent UK television coverage. You're also on Fifth Gear, a programme on British television. Next step is Celebrity TV, surely. Steady on, Straw, steady on. I still do a little bit of driving as well, just so we're clear. But Just for know. fun, as a retired driver. <sighs> Shut up. But surely it's Strictly Come Dancing next, something like that. Uh, you've never seen me on a dance floor, have you? So, no, there's not a chance of that happening. You could be the comedy participant that everyone <laughs> takes, takes pity yeah, on. Yeah, that, that would be true. Yes, that would be true. Uh, Shall we move on? <laughs> well, I just wanted to talk about the fact you're, you're 21st century Tiff Nadella, I like oh, to think of you as. I knew that was coming. There's, n- there's nothing wrong with that. That's a 
He's a I'm sure Tiff will appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> very, very much so. And uh, also joining me is James Roberts. Now, you are something of a specialist on the city of Sochi, aren't you? You're, you're a near resident. Good evening, Straw. Yes, I am indeed. This is my seventh visit to Sochi, uh, even though there have only been five Russian Grand Prix here. But I did come twice when it was being built just to see how it was getting on. So, yes, um, I'm, a, I'm a fan of this place. It certainly improved a lot. Remember the first uh, year, 2014, it was quite hard work. It was quite hard to get things like food, food was hard. restaurant service, etc., yeah. etc. Et it was all a little bit patchy, but it's gradually getting getting uh, much nicer. Even our palatial surroundings and this 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 hotel looked quite unpromising when we were getting here, but it's all very very pleasant, particularly with my uh, my master suite. I was a bit concerned because when you sent me a, a Google Maps link to come here, I clicked on it and it said the average price for a room here is £21 a night. So I was a bit concerned about where I was coming. <laughs> That's about our budget, yeah. Um, I, to describe the room, I, I, it, it's it's almost got a velvety feel to it, hasn't it? There's this remarkable, yeah, there's this remarkable um, regal purple couch that Karun and I are sitting on. I can, I think, I can almost hear the Black Sea um, waves coming through the window, and uh, the curtains are drawn at the moment. But in the distance, all the stadiums for the Olympic Games that was the Winter Games for fourteen are all lit up and they're all flashing and. Um, yeah, it's quite. Um, it's an unu- very close to the Georgian border as well. That's something that doesn't get picked up very much. Exactly. On, on, on the latitude of the uh, same latitude as the south of France, so it's very temperate, very mild, and a very pleasant place. It's deceptively warm here, isn't it? It's uh, one of those ones because we walk to the track from here. It's only a stone's throw. You could, you can, you know, hear the hear the track activities even if there's not cars on it's that close but uh you know you certainly uh get caught out by uh by how warm it is it's uh it's it's coming on nicely a nice nice little holiday resort and and, and i'll just pick you up on something the fans as well um when we were standing on the starting grid and i looked up over the main grandstand and saw all of them all packed into turn turn it was two. impressive yeah, wasn't it really I, impressive. I was really impressed with the crowd this year and actually i um was very surprised even on Thursday how busy it was huge mm. and the promoter um, one of the people from the promoter said to me that one change they've done this year they've charged people a fiver to come in I think it's about six pound the equivalent of six pounds so hardly anything to come in and they get a um, what's called as a standing ticket so they can wander around and stand by the track on the mm. various grass banks and stuff which is a great idea really I mean it's you know to try and encourage Formula One in a country where they don't have a huge history or culture of it it's you know it's quite a good initiative really there are actually quite a few nice places to stand as well in general admission where you get a decent view of the track so yeah but it's that's good value a little later remind me about um a story sergei sorokin told us about his first visit to sochi and when he carted here but we'll come on to that later i like the fact you're you're teasing later parts of the podcast to keep people interested which is really something i should be doing but uh unlike certain people i'm not a, i'm not a professional but not a professional broadcaster as i've just proved by uh, almost <laughs> swallowing the microphone while while trying to talk so well, let, well, let's get on to the race Karun, team orders the, the the basic summary of the race is that Bottas had it and because of Mercedes' decisions, Hamilton won it. But it's a little bit more complicated than that, how this situation arose. So how do you read what Mercedes did during the race on the pit wall? So my, first of all, my, my, my take on it is they were right to make Lewis win the race. I think for the sake of the World Championship, there's too much at stake. Yes, he's 50 points of lead, but two DNFs, and they could happen. We've seen it before in Formula 1, just ask Nigel Mansell. And they can't risk not doing everything they should to win this World Championship. So 
in principle, I'm not against the team orders thing. Um, but what I don't understand is why they made such a meal out of it. You know, they could if they had just spoken about it before the race and gone, look, Valtteri, you got to be the number two here. This is what's going on. Let's just let's just get this sorted. We'll do it probably around the pit stop, so it's not so obvious. But essentially, Lewis is going to undercut you, or we'll do something on track where on turn one or lap one you just let him pass, and let's just get it over and done with. But in the end, they they made it really complicated for themselves, and, and then you know I can understand why there's a lot of fans who are upset about it. You know, I I put a tweet out saying I didn't have a problem with the team orders, and I was you know there's probably 90% of people came back with a negative reaction to that from the fans. And I get where the fans are coming from. They they don't like to see results, you know, fixed in, in such a way. They want to see it all happen on track. But in the bigger picture of the of the business side of the sport, Mercedes did the right thing for them. I think where it went wrong, and I still can't understand why, I mean, Toto's come up with an explanation of, he distracted James Vowles at that point, and therefore they didn't do it. But the bare bones are, they called Bottas in first, which personally I was very surprised about. I thought Lewis was 1.2 seconds behind. Perfect. That's exactly where he needs to be to undercut Well, well at him. that point, I think they were sincere in that they didn't want to impose team orders. I think they were, they were running right. the race yeah. normally. Yeah. And that's, that's why they, as you'd expect, the leader has priority. Yeah, which I don't understand. You know, what? why were they... Why would they not just discuss it pre-race and have the team orders? They were going to. Well, that'd be the logical thing to do. That'd be the logical thing to do. I, I don't get why there's why you know Toto told me I went to speak to him straight after the race before the podium, and uh, it was when they were in Park Fermi, and you could see Valtteri looking at Lewis's tires at a blister. And you know, looked, Toto and yeah. I were talking about it. We could see these pictures unfolding, and Toto said, "Oh, we had a meeting for an hour before, and we decided that we let Valtteri go for the win." And that is service supply. Anyway, but coming back to the point, they chose to bring um, Valtteri in first and therefore Lewis didn't have the opportunity to undercut. Okay, that's fine. But then they left Lewis out for two laps. And I was looking at it, you know, on a timing app, on the F1 timing app, which thanks to Ed Straw's ranting is now working for all the <laughs> subscribers around the world. But immediately on, on what would have been Valtteri's outlap, he gained 1.4 seconds on Lewis in sectors two and three. It's just a no-brainer. You got a box. And they left him out there. And then Ferrari boxed. And actually, Seb closed in on Valtteri, didn't he, on that mm. round of stops? Well, Valtteri was told just to do the opposite of, of Hamilton, and yeah. he probably couldn't believe that. Couldn't believe, yeah, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't believe that. Nobody could believe why, no. they, why Lewis chose to stay out. Well, it, and, so, it sounds like, from what I understand... For some reason, this doesn't make a great deal of sense with how this stuff works and what was going on. They seem to feel that maybe Hamilton had enough pace, enough life in the tyres to to go around again. Maybe they were worried about the tyre life for the second stint. But it, but th- they were obviously having a discussion about this. Why they were doing that, I don't know. Because although Toto Wolff repeatedly took responsibility for it, it but that's his job. He, uh, exactly. He's the team leader. He's got uh, to, true, he's yeah. got to cover off everybody. He's got to protect his people. And he, if he takes responsibility for it, then essentially he's protected everybody around him. But, uh, you know, Toto's a very good leader in that respect. And he, he made the call during the race, I think, to, to swap them around. Yes. Which is what Ferrari should have done in Monza, frankly. And they didn't. You know, he kind of showed Arriba Pene what 
those tough calls should have been. But, um, you know, they they put Lewis in, and themselves in a strange situation on a weekend when they had clearly the fastest car and one two in the race. They just made a bit of a meal of the whole thing. It was interesting, wasn't it, Jimmy? Because once it, it almost felt like once they created this situation where they then ordered Bottas to try and back up Vettel a little bit because they realised yes, they'd yeah. made a mistake and they'd exposed Lewis through not pitting him. And then it once they sort of started doing that, I think they it's almost like they felt, oh, actually, this is the right thing to do fundamentally. Yeah. So that they kind of, that, that sort of sent them down this team orders path. Yes, because Toto said afterwards that in all of their strategy meetings they had Sunday morning, this scenario they did not discuss. But they didn't discuss this scenario because they weren't expecting to get the strategy wrong. Do you see what I mean? So, because the strategy was wrong, not bringing Lewis in, you suddenly had this situation where. But, but I, I don't really understand why they didn't discuss something like this. Because if you know, we had a discussion about in the morning where I said, "Well, there is one strategy. Well, there is one card Ferrari could play." Where I thought, "Well, if Bottas was leading Hamilton, if if Ferrari went first, then they might have to make the decision about, oh, actually, do we cover him with Hamilton and risk losing the win with Bottas, or do we go as normal?" And that might force them into that situation. And this was a version of that situation. It wasn't a, that unlikely, was it? It just, yeah. just seemed weird, didn't it? But as you, it all comes down to this thing of, of as you say, Jimmy, making the, making the strategy mistake that didn't factor in. So you make, make them wonder, why, why did you do it? Here's a question. Do you think they're conflicted? And when I say they, I mean starting with Toto, because he's the leader and he, he makes these he calls, really. But do you think they're conflicted between this where racers we're going to let them race? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, then yeah, doing yeah. the thing, doing the what's right for the team and the business. Yeah, yeah 100%. Because Toto uh, admitted after the race that he struggled to sleep last night. He said he was spending a lot of time thinking about Austria 2002. And of course, that was the famous, I think it was 2002, wasn't it? That was the famous um, Ferrari team orders very early in the season where they ordered Rubens um, to give the gift that went to Michael. And he said he was wrestling with that um, and, and of mentally. course he said he was there that weekend because he was competing, there racing competing in, in the Porsche Super Cup. In the, in the Porsche Super Cup. And he was wrestling with that because what did that mean for the sport and the brand and the image and was that a good thing? And and he was asked, did did whatever uh, Jean Tot did on that day, did you agree agree with it on that day? And he, he, he uh, politically answered all the questions correctly to say that Jean Todd has been one of the most successful team bosses of all time but I think from a so from a sporting perspective he did because he was asked well do you think this is sporting and he said look it, we did try and come at it from a sporting perspective right from the off um uh, they worked together beautifully. If you watch Lewis, he gets right into um, Valtteri's slipstream and just nudges Seb wide so he can do it. So they managed that perfectly and, and, and they left, gave each other room at turn one, even though Lewis had a quick lockup and, and, and tried to go for the lead. And then when the pit stops came, they did elect to put Valtteri into the pits first. He said, we could have brought Lewis in, as you said, and uh, and won the race from there. So I think they were being fair. And then suddenly when they got to this level of circumstance and they could see that um, uh, Lewis had blistered his tyres trying to get past Sebastian and now he was in trouble from behind, they suddenly went, ah, now we need to change things around here. And so I think they were trying to be fair and sporting, but ultimately the, the way it started to pan out, they reversed that decision on the hoof. It comes down to that once you're in the reality of the battlefield, so to speak, that's when the, when you the decisions are really clear and 
you realise what's at stake because it's all yeah. very well being noble and saying we want to let them race. But then when the reality strikes, I mean, at the point you made, Green, that they should have probably decided to do this before the race rather than getting into this yeah. situation. But but also, you know, it was interesting. They they made that radio, they sent that radio message to Valtteri. I think James Val said to Valtteri about the blister on Lewis's tyre. And I remember, you know, a few seconds later looking at the timing screen and Lewis had gone purple on lap nine. He just said the fastest lap of the race. And I was like... Yes, there was a blister, but but his pace was pretty mega at that time. It I don't know if, if for me, I I just for Valtteri's sake, I hope he can recover from this because you know David talked about Melbourne '98. He's written about it in his book even about how he never quite recovered from having to let Mika through in in Melbourne '98. And Which of course was, was the second race in a row he'd had to do that after Harris. Of course, after Harris, but. But he said it was more the Melbourne one, which which kind of stung, and and from that day on, it was always this niggling doubt of mm. am mm. I the am I the permanent number two here? But at the same time, if Valtteri Bottas wants to not be in that situation, if he performs more strongly over the season, then yes. he doesn't get into that position. So there is a little, little bit of that. But I think the the strange thing is though, but mentioning the blister, of course, the blister arose because Lewis came out of the pits almost side by side with Vettel, but he wasn't able to contest turn two. So he was in behind him and then he passed him, I think it was the next lap round, in that long, never-ending turn three. Yeah, it, was a, it was a cracking move. But obviously, because he had to attack so much on fresh rubber, and of course, when you've got the maximum tread, that's when the temperature builds it builds up the most. It's hard to dissipate it. And that can cause blisters. So the fact that they'd made this mistake with the strategy meant that Lewis lost position, meant that he got the blister, getting it back, meant that they gave the team order. Yep. And also the other factor that fell into that as well, I think, was Verstappen coming through so quickly so that Verstappen ended up parked in front of Bottas. And if Verstappen had taken a little bit longer to get through, he, he wouldn't quite have been there. As we saw with Ricardo. he ended up out, out, out of the way. So all these sort of factors. Yeah, I think Verstappen was less of a concern because, you know, he, he was going to pit anyway. Yeah, but top. Bottas wouldn't have been being held up by him, which he was at that stage. So... Bottas, Verstappen was backing up Bottas into Hamilton, into Vettel. Yeah. So it just condensed everything, didn't it? Well, here's a question for you, because this Toto was asked this. He said um, it wasn't it wasn't sporting. And he turned it around to the journalists who were sitting there. He said, what would you do? So, Kaloon, you're on the Mercedes pit wall and you can see what's happening. What do you do at that point? Do you let w- them which race? Which point? Uh, at the point where... Lewis had got ahead of, of uh, Sebastian, had this blister and was running behind Valtteri, but had Sebastian behind him. Would you also let, would you order Valtteri through or would you just let it play out? I think, I'd like to think that I would have made the call earlier. I, I, I'd like to think that before the race, I would have made it clear to Valtteri that, Sorry, sunshine. This isn't your. You would year. have pitted Lewis before him. I would have pitted Lewis. Yeah. I wouldn't. I, I'd like to think I, from from before the race, I would have. I would have gone. This is not your season. You know, in the August break, in fact, you go right from here on. You're you're the number two. You can start winning races once Lewis has sealed the championship. So let's say he seals it in Mexico. You're free to win in Brazil and Abu Dhabi, but otherwise next year and I think that's where that conflict com- has come in I think Toto's gone into the race trying to do the right thing in terms yeah. of being a racer and let them race exactly. and all the rest of it yeah. 
and I think he's maybe he's going to slightly regret that. You know. Well, of course, it comes down to this point, doesn't it? That once you, all these things have happened, you end up with Hamilton ahead of Bottas, and then the Ferrari challenge was basically broken. The, the, the Hamilton blistering wasn't a problem, and then later in the race, even Vettel lost a, lost a bit of time behind Grosjean, so even Vettel was a bit back from Bottas. So there was an opportunity there for them to order Bottas back past Hamilton. Bottas asked the question, and Mercedes said no. Yes. Toto decided they shouldn't do it. Because it, it, it kind of, that's the kind of final point where it moves from this abstract idea, this noble, I'll oh, let them race, we'll be, we'll be honest. And that's the final reality. It's like, right, Toto, you've swapped them around. You now have the choice of whether you swap them around. And he will have been thinking, if I make this choice and we lose the championship exactly. by five points, it doesn't look likely, but it can happen. Yeah. yeah then I, you look like an idiot. Yeah. I, I agree. And that's why I think he, sh- they should just make the call on Sunday start, yeah. morning. Just in their Sunday morning pre-race briefing, it should all be about how are we going to get Lewis in front and how are we going to... In the same way, Ed, you and I spoke in Monza, but how Ferrari should have... Everything they discussed Sunday morning with Raikkonen should have been how they get him to allow Vettel past in the cleanest way possible. Instead, they decided that morning to tell him he was going to get sacked, which, <laughs> which probably contributed to him not being particularly helpful to Vettel and actually covering the inside line. I, I feel like I feel like it's you know sometimes there's a really difficult awkward decision it gets deferred and I almost feel like there's a case there of like you might say you might think well we'll let them race and maybe it'll just sort itself out maybe Lewis will pass him and we won't have to worry about it and we can look great. But again it's just this this onset of reality. So that's where you kind of got to admire Jimmy's old mate Ron Dennis. You know he made the call that same Melbourne 98 yeah. that we talked about. That's minor racing. <laughs> Exactly. Before, you know, he made a call before the race yeah. and said, listen, whoever comes to the first corner first, that's it. You're the winner. I think I think the thing that's important is that the team doesn't like doing this. No, nobody Le- You can see, see Lewis didn't really like it. No. Valtteri no. certainly didn't like it. Toto Wolff didn't like doing it. The team didn't enjoy doing it. And it, it kind of turned a 1-2 that puts Hamilton near enough at the brink of winning the championship. They're in, in almost impregnable position in the Constructors' Championship as they eked out a nice big lead and it turned what should have been a triumph into a yes in, into sure. a there was a shadow cast over it but yep. it's necessity isn't it and yeah it's it's ruthlessness and that's how you win championships the best in sport they have to be ruthless at time that's that's just how it is evil. yeah exactly is, and, yeah. and even Bottas will I'm sure in the cold light of day look at it and think yeah, yeah. yeah that they, I think that would have happened. As Toto said again, he 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 looked at Austria and he said that race we were winning one two, and we lost forty three points. Now there's five races. There's a fifty point lead now that they have over Sebastian in the World Championship. He said freak results happen in motor racing. We see it all the time. There could be rain, safety cars, mechanical failures, and suddenly they could be in a position. He said. He said. We mustn't take our performance for granted going into these last races. And so the actions that they've taken today are to win a world championship. I, I 100%, and I've said it a lot, I 100% agree with them having team orders to let Lewis win. The part that I'm finding really hard to understand is this lack of clarity yeah, from the start. before the race. And, it, it, you know, it was really awkward, wasn't it? You know, the whole atmosphere... It was subdued. It was all a bit awkward. It was just a bit weird. Nobody but, was really celebrating. Nobody well, and, seemed happy in the Mercedes. I, and Valtteri, know, I, Valtteri and everyone else would have had time to come to terms with it as well. Exactly. If if they decided before the race, if Valtteri had let him pass you know, at the start or on lap one or whatever and just played Rio Gunner, we'd have all had the two hours of the race, Lewis would have won it and we'd go, 
Yeah. I get understand why they did that. But isn't this the brilliant thing about motor racing? Because they're unusually, unlike other sports, there are two championships at play. Can you think of another sport where you actually compete for two championships it's, it's not concurrently? As a, it's not as extreme as it is in, in motor racing, Formula 1 in particular. There's various sports where there's a balance of team and individual performance. Cyclings, road cycling is the often, yeah, often cycling. quotable and obvious one. But it's not, it's not quite the same. But there is a, there, there is this slight imbalance, this uneasy relationship in yeah. in, in that to, regard. To fight for yourself and also for the team, and so you get scenarios like this. But this is yeah. what makes this sport so fascinating yeah, and, this, the, and, the thing and is, unique. The thing is, it's been. This is not a case of you just designate a lead driver and just slavishly they always have to finish ahead, whatever happens at the start of the season. You know, this used to be in Grand Prix racing historically. They were, they were really formalised team hierarchies back in the day. I remember, yes, it, uh, hand hand cars over to Fangio to let him go on and win the win the world yeah, championship. Yeah, exactly. And, you and, can have my car. Exactly, wow. and you get you get instances like, for example, when Ferrari got their first world championship win, which was Gonzalez at Silverstone in '51. They tried to offer the car Gonzalez to hand the car back over to Ascari. Well, didn't didn't Villeneuve also in '79 with Schecter? Didn't he? play second fiddle at the last couple of races. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, Monza, he had to sit behind him, Ronnie yeah. Peterson. Suddenly, you know, it, 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 is a, a, it is kind of a fact of life. And I think, ultimately, if you look back, Austria 2002, it's the kind of touchstone for team orders, isn't yeah. it? That was ham-fisted, badly executed. And, and just, too early. And it was too early. And also, Schumacher had a massive championship lead already at yeah. that stage. It was, it was needless. That was that was yeah. the thing. I think there's there's a very very big difference, and I think you you've used the right word. It was needless then. Now I I, I think once you've got over the the two thirds mark of the championship, if you're in particular, you know, in a battle with another team, you've got to back one horse, and Ferrari should have put all their eggs into Seb's basket, and and they they made a hash of it. You know, but we're all talking about how Mercedes overcomplicated life for themselves. Ferrari did it in Hockenheim. You know, they, they had yeah. this whole long conversation with Kimi about it. And eventually Kimi just went, just tell me what yeah, to do. Yeah. And actually Seb lost about four or five seconds there. Yeah, well, it's, it's which put him under pressure. Diff, it's this way. fear of team orders. I mean, I do like the fact Mercedes, once they started doing the team orders, they were honest about it. It was clear yeah. in the radio messages. Yeah, yeah. Toto didn't make anything up after the race. It was all kind of, yeah, this is what we did. There's there's this weird thing. Ever since Austria 2002, obviously in 2003, the team orders ban came in, which of course, the team orders ban was always unworkable. And that was an that, idiotic thing. It was yeah, an idiotic rule. Work. And it wasn't until Germany 2010, the famous time that Alonso was ordered to pass Massa, that was the point where it broke down because it was such a ridiculous rule and they dropped the ban. So it's not banned now, but everyone's so... Well, a lot of them are so worried about it's kind of motive, being seen to be to be doing it. But I think it's just really important that they just say, look, this this is what Grand Prix racing sometimes is. We don't like it, but it's the reality and it's a necessity because you would look very, very stupid if you threw away points to not implementing them and then lost the championship. Sebastian said something interesting uh, this evening. He, he talked about the fact that Mercedes worked so well together. And I mentioned that thing um, off the start uh, where they where they squeezed him out. But also there was another point in the race where Valtteri was told to slow up and he slowed himself up into Sebastian, didn't he? And Sebastian locked up at turn 13. Yeah, that was when Hamilton was doing his pit. Was, Hamilton was right behind him. Stop, yeah. And then that gave him the opportunity to take that uh, attempt to pass him with DRS down that down the start finish straight. Now, which we I think we should talk about 
Um, having looked at it again, there are very clearly two moves. There's the first move that Sebastian makes, and then as they enter the braking zone, he moves again. And there's nothing, there's no space for a Mercedes to go between him and the wall. And I'm quite surprised that the stewards said no further action because, Karun, you're on the um, FIA driver um, uh, committee. Um, what, commission. Commission, that's the word I was looking for. What, um, what was your view of what he did with that double move? I thought it was hard. I thought it was on the edge, but it wasn't something we haven't seen before and from other people, Kevin Magnuson, Max Verstappen, et cetera, et cetera, who've got away um, with just a warning. And I think it's really important in our sport over the last few years that Charlie and the stewards have all tried to establish a degree of consistency. So I think they were right not to do anything because there's there's been a precedent for that sort of stuff before we've seen with Max where he didn't get penalized. So you can't now penalize somebody, you know, and once a precedent be said. So I, I I thought it was on the limit, very hard, and I think he he couldn't make that second move any later. He he the moment he chose to do that second move to the right was literally the last point at which he would they would have got away with it without having a crash or a penalty. So he was just far enough uh, ahead, you yeah, mean. Yeah, exactly. I thought I thought it was just about on the limit of doing it. But, you know, while, while you've raised the subject, we should talk about what happened a few seconds later because all the way around turn three, yeah. the fact that Lewis was able to carry so much speed around the outside of the Ferrari, um, you know, despite covering a, a longer distance effectively by being on the outside and on the marbles says to me that Mercedes have negated any straight line deficit. And actually, I did a, an onboard comparison in qualifying for our Channel 4 broadcast uh, on the Saturday of Valtteri on pole versus um, Vettel's time, which is basically best Ferrari versus best Mercedes. And historically, over the season, we've seen Ferrari have an advantage across the straights. You know, it's been anywhere between two tenths to three and a half tenths of most circuits. But there was nothing in it. They, they, it was zero across the lap. And that's the first time. So either Ferrari were running a load of downforce, in which case, well, why weren't they quick on the corners? Or B, have Mercedes uncovered something in the power unit, which is giving yep. them more power? Mm-hmm. Or C, did Ferrari make some monumental mistake with a car setup because the drivers didn't look like they had an easy car to drive this weekend. And the front wing changes, you know, the updates that they brought didn't seem to do the change. So but that's some, said, something no. fundamentally has changed in the dynamic between the performance of those mm. two teams. But that said, I, I asked Kimi Räikkönen after the race, said, well, you've said the car was okay. So do you feel that you've gone back? So has Mercedes taken a clear step the last few races? And he said, well, it, looks, it does look like they've made a, they've made a step. I think I know one area they've worked on a lot after you remember at Spa they struggled out of the bus stop and, and La Source on the traction. And I know they've done a lot of work in China understanding that and improving the mechanical package. So I think that it's potentially they could be gaining a little bit at corner exit, which will help you on the straights. So I think that might be part of it. And we have seen the Mercedes when it's working has had higher peaks generally than the Ferrari, even though the Ferrari because yeah, it's Barcelona quite user friendly. Come to mind, don't they? Those are the two that really jump out, and then recently Singapore and and, and Sochi. But I, I think 
probably we're, I don't think Ferrari have necessarily gone backwards, but Mercedes is certainly doing a, a better job of getting on top of it and working the tires. And they've had a few little tire cooling tricks they've, uh, they've, they've introduced. But at the moment, Ferrari looks utterly toothless in this championship fight. They they just don't have the they just don't have the pace, and it's all a little bit chaotic as well, isn't it? I mean, there was a bit of team radio in the race where they said to Kimi um, around the time of the pit stop, saying, "You know, do the opposite of Hamilton," and he came back with, "How can I? I can't even see him," or something yeah. to that effect. Basically, you know, they and then. Was at the end of FP two. There was all FP3 yeah, yeah, on yeah. Saturday. Three was a bit yeah. chaotic. Oh, they send yeah, the cars yeah. out. Stop, stop, stop. They stop, told stop, Kimi. stop at the yeah. end, and then they they keep you know. But said stop at the end. The pit lane, and Kimi is here. And, and we've seen a lot of this sort of thing recently. It, it just if, seems if, a bit chaotic. I think it, the one one of the ways I think you can look at it is that Mercedes have got these years of success over the mm. past in, in the turbo hybrid era to fall back on and I almost feel like when they're struggling because they've been so successful they can just fall back on the on the process on the knowledge like well we know if we just keep working the way we're working keep working through it modifying the car getting it working the way we want we know we'll do well whereas I feel Ferrari almost because they haven't got that confidence they get a little bit sort of grabby almost they're almost trying too hard to do stuff and rather than just sort of relaxing into it they're like a bit keyed up and trying and that's what you sort of see with some of this slight animation in the garage and that kind of thing. And I feel that's that's part of it. And then it also perhaps that comes back to the pressure that's being put on the team to to succeed because th- this is a year they're, they're expected to win the championship. Can I tell you about, um, uh, I did an interview with Sebastian Vettel on Thursday for a future issue of F1 Racing Magazine. And one of the questions was, how do you deal with, um, how do you come back from, big mistakes that you make because he's 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 made quite a few um mistakes this season as we've seen and the example was germany and he said um it wasn't a big mistake in germany it was a very tiny mistake with huge consequences which i thought was a was a very nice way he to to to, to sum it up um talking about mistakes and being error free we were talking earlier in the weekend about how lewis has has brilliantly driven in this championship and how few errors there have been until Saturday, when he had a real, real pressure, and, and Valtteri was, who's always been supremely good here, hasn't he? I think it's, we were discussing earlier. I think it's to do with the the smooth asphalt and the and uh, the low grip. Low yeah, grip. He, I mean, he's brilliant. I mean, he is. I, I like to call him the uh, the green track world champion. <laughs> so if you watch an FP one, he's he's brilliant at that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, he's got great feel, hasn't he, when the tracks yeah. low grip and you have to underdrive the front end a little bit. And particularly, exactly. I think last year, this year, the cars have got even more downforce. And now with the hypersofts, that advantage of his has gone away a little bit. But certainly last year on low grip tracks, Monaco, he, I thought it was Monaco quality lap 2017 was that, stellar. One of the laps of the year. Yeah. stellar, one of the laps of the season. And, and it's interesting because Lewis was struggling. I mean, he, he did have the advantage basically in sector one and sector three, yes, but yeah. during the weekend, sector two was always the problem. There were times when he's a bit quicker. I get the, I get the impression maybe Valtteri held back a little bit in at times in qualifying it's, to their but I think ultimately that mistake that Hamilton made, was it turn nine? Turn seven. Turn seven. seven. The, the right hand of the rear sort of went on turn on the chat, so he had to abort the track, abort the lap. Uh, I feel that was born from the fact that Lewis knew he had to absolutely nail that sector mm. in order to, well, not necessarily nail it. He, he, he could only give away a little bit to Bottas there, and and yeah. and that's what and that's what caused that to happen. But also, I think Lewis, you know, he's had a couple of weekends where he's been a little bit subpar and stuff earlier in the year, but. 
when he's and that comes back to exactly the quote that Sebastian told you. Sebastian's errors have had big consequences yeah. mm-hmm. in terms of the World Championship. Lewis's, shall we say, slightly wobbly weekends or small mistakes still means he gets a podium or gets, you know, he's still somewhere there or thereabouts. Well, Baku, it doesn't mean Baku, zero points. Baku was one of his less good weekends. He made a mistake in the race and he still, yeah. admittedly, through good fortune, won. Yes. Yeah, exactly. The, and The great and, champions have a knack of doing that, don't they? Yeah, and there have been more than one weekend where he's not quite looked hooked up early on. I mean, Austria as well, I think, yeah. you know, Valtteri looked very strong, didn't he? China, Bahrain. China, both, Bahrain, both yeah, exactly. Out, yeah. And, but he's still he's still been able to rack up the points. And I think that's the difference between the, the errors we've seen from Seb this year. Um, you know, France, Monza, and um, certainly, obviously, Germany were all ones that cost good chunk of points. Is anyone going to advance a reason as to why we should still be excited about this Drivers' Championship battle? I'm still hoping, because ultimately just want it to be dramatic and go down to the wire. I don't, don't really mind who wins, I just want it to be a, a, a good fight. But do we think it's it's kind of running out of that steam? Because it was a fantastic championship fight for a big chunk of the year, with yeah. it ebbing and flowing, Lee changing hands. I think, unfortunately, uh, Ferrari have, have once again not delivered it. No, I think the... Year after year, we seem to talk about them as, as the underachievers of Formula One, given the resources and the people and the drivers they've got and, you know, all the, the money and brain power involved. And, you know, it's now a decade since their last Drivers' World Championship. That's, it just that's, proves to you how difficult it is to get everything lined up and to get it all together. It's such a, such a difficult, such a difficult quest, isn't it? I, I think the hope. Is that Ferrari don't they, you know we got there's a new management there so we never know how that's going to impact things but they need to kind of keep they need to bring a sense of calm there remember this is what Ross Braun tried to do when he went there in in terms of just sort of how they were running the team and John Tovs he was a big driving force behind that trying to make it a bit more of a a calm place to work without the pressure being piled on and if they can just say actually there's a lot of positives to take this year and if we keep doing what we're doing take the experience then maybe we can avoid this happening next time. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a concern the, for them. The addition they, ha- they have next year of Charles Leclerc is, is going to be interesting. Change the dynamic. And um, as we saw again today, what a brilliant performance he put in and what a, what a consistently excellent driver he's yeah, cl- shown class, to be. Class B victory, as we call it, seventh place, and also past Kevin Magnussen to do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, winner of the Jim Clark Cup. Exactly, uh, yeah. I, I think we should reinstate that. But we know how difficult it is to pass Kevin, uh, Kevin Magnus. Yeah, quite. No, I think, and also he kind of went under the radar in some way, Charles. I feel like I didn't see him on TV screen yeah. even once all day. Um, but yeah, super performance all weekend as well. I thought, and actually, he really impressed me this weekend because he didn't look great on Friday. He looked, you know, slightly uncomfortable on the track. Didn't look like he had a good rhythm. Just not particularly happy with his flow around the circuit. Sauber also was a bit floaty as well, wasn't yeah, it? Certainly uh, on Friday morning. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I saw him um, in the paddock. I've known Charles for a little while, so we, you know, we we often have a bit of a chat. And he was he's quite honest about when he feels not driving well, but he bounced back really well. I thought on Saturday, he immediately in FP three, hit the ground running, and then carried that form on, into the rest of the weekend. And to me, that underlines the star quality, that ability to to bounce back when when things have started off a bit shaky. You know, Ed, I think we've talked about it before with Grosjean, for example. If a weekend in FP1 starts off well, 
you could see him carry that through. And if it doesn't, then often the weekend just doesn't happen. Yeah, no, Trilly was another driver a bit like that. Yeah. But I, I, I think Charles is different in that respect. I think where it could get a little bit tricky for Ferrari is the um, the possibility now that Red Bull Honda, if they come good, all of a sudden you're fighting three teams. And operationally, I think both Mercedes and Red Bull are better than Ferrari. I think I still believe Red Bull, in terms of strategy, in terms of operationally on the ground, I think they still are probably the best team in F1. They're willing to think left field and outside mm. the box. And they, they, they're opportunistic, aren't they? And they look at China and stuff. Just as a, a little insight, sometimes when you walk up and down the pit lane and you look into the garages and you can just see how the mechanics are working, you can see what's being... Um, you, you can see where the engineers are established. And, sometimes, and when, when you walk to Mercedes and then you compare instantly with, with Ferrari, you can just see how the garage layout, where the, the way the engineers sit, they face each other in a central hub, where if you look at Ferrari, they, they have their backs to each other, don't they? And it just, just, just little details like that uh, uh, give you real insights into, into how teams think, operate, and how everything works out. And, and you're right, Red Bull as well, um, despite the banging music that came out of their garage uh, as the drivers were getting into the car, where um, it was a much more quiet and, um, uh, from the uh, German and Italian teams, uh, you, you can definitely pick up insights from just from just how they operate in, in in terms of how well they work. Yeah, and you know, they've got despite the fact that they're an energy drink company and you know they're a life they've sort of become a lifestyle brand and all the rest of it. But they've got some serious, serious racers in there. You know, Adrian Newey and Jonathan Wheatley, Paul Monaghan, Rob Marshall. Guys who've been around a long time. These are all serious racing guys who've been around a long time. They won a lot of world championships, not just at Red Bull, but in other teams as well. Well, and this was a, this was a group of people that effectively managed to turn the shambles that was Jaguar, yeah, into a race-winning team. What, exactly, and uh, fifth and, season. And you know, I've I've had some conversations with them as to as to how things are going for next year in 2019, and there's there's a lot of reason to be optimistic as to why their relationship with Honda is going to be different to McLaren's relationship with Honda and how and how Honda have have come to them with saying we we need this 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 and this to be different for us to deliver our potential and Red Bull are approaching it I think with an open mind and saying okay look we have to make this work the Renault thing is not working for us we've decided to go down this path come on guys what do you need in Japan for this to work and yeah I I I'm sort of cautiously optimistic that we're going to have the third team in yeah. the championship. We need fight. that as well, don't we? We need Absolutely. a third team. And, and we saw today from Verstappen the incisiveness in the early laps. Brilliant, He finished it? fifth in the race. He had that long stint, 30-odd laps, I think it must have been, uh, in the lead, thanks to starting on the softs. Uh, you know, he, he's an incisive driver and he's he's very much got the edge over Ricardo. Consistently, we see tenth and a half, two tenths in sort of normal qualifying. The gap was a bit bigger in Singapore, but gaps tend to be bigger in, in Singapore. But Verstappen, after his job, was absolutely flying this year. So they've got a championship winning or championship challenging driver in Max, as long as he doesn't have too many mishaps. But but I think in the post, and I don't care how many times he keeps saying, I'm the same guy as before Monaco, he isn't. 
you can watch it trackside. He's now no longer driving at 105%. Yeah. He's and driving at 95%. You just need to watch turn one of the Canadian Grand Prix this year to yeah. realise he's No, was and Singapore. You know, Singapore, to me, that, you know, yes, he's he didn't win the race and he's won other races. But actually... Singapore impressed me more than any other race weekend for Max. Because that, that was one of the performances of the year. Because he lost he lost out to Seb into turn seven. And I think in the pre-Monaco Max Verstappen, he he would have got into some sort of tangle at turn seven with Seb. He would have banged wheels, lost the front wing, something would happen. He actually gave the place up and let Seb go around the outside of him. And then when it came back to getting the place back after the pit stop, Clean move, got it done, super lap in qualifying. Uh, and to me, the run of races he's had since um, since Monaco, basically starting from Canada, he's beaten Daniel 10-0 in qualifying. It's just incredible, really. And he now looks like a driver ready to challenge for the World Championship. The, the only thing in that run you can be negative about is at Monza with Bossas with the moving over oh, too yes, much. Yeah. That, but beyond that, he's been... He's been fantastic. He's been absolutely. Maybe he's maturing. It's he's he's another yeah. year older. He's twenty turned twenty one today, al- didn't and he? And also, you can't. No, he won't admit it, but you cannot fail to learn. What happens? And the thing is, you know, you keep saying he hasn't changed his approach. Maybe he doesn't think his approach has changed, but the mindset, that ability to evaluate under pressure, risk in the race, risk versus reward, just just to see the bigger picture. Because you often hear the team on the radio, sort of trying to. Remind him of that. You'll hear him sort of celebrate a passing. He's like, "Right, focus. Come on, get on with it. Well done." But you know, you've got the rest of the rest of the race to do, and that's that's important. Of course, it's the guy who's only just turned twenty-one. He was super today. I thought all his overtaking moves weren't on the edge. They were measured. They were, and he did them into turn thirteen, which is not an easy yeah. place to pass. Yeah. But um, he, he did a couple of moves into four as well, and you know, he he knows where the strength of the Red Bull lies. You know, it's um, it's under braking and that that you know braking and turning into a slow speed corner he knows he can get past people but didn't make it ridiculously edgy you're waving a piece of paper jimmy I, you I, want to say something i have in my hand piece in our time yes i have in my hand a piece of paper which is uh, the lap chart from today so you can see lap one so having started 19th he's he's up to 13th at the end of the first lap and then very quickly there's four consecutive laps where he overtakes somebody in four places and then you follow all the way through the leader's pit and by lap 19 he's leading the race and that from 19 to 19 um it's it was quite extraordinary and, and it was it was it livened up those early it, it was interesting wasn't it because he started on the soft tire and we all thought that Renault not running in Q2 yesterday being on the soft tire we're going to have the best one of the best strategies to work but it just didn't work out for them at all did it I think you R- have to Renault, have bit- Renault have also got a problem with pace because yeah. it was because Renault didn't even have the pace to get into Q3 in a normal thing so Exactly. I think it, you can have whatever strategy you want, but you have to have pace to make the strategy work. And yeah, Renault just, you know, despite the same power unit, they're on a, this weekend, what, a second? I don't know what they were in Q1, but they've been about a second away from Red Bull, aren't they? But the, the other thing about the Red Bull performances and Max is that it was surprising that Dan Ricciardo wasn't making the same progress through the field, but we learnt when he made his pit stop later on in the race that he had a front wing and front nose change. And apparently at turn two uh, on the first lap, 
he, there was contact between him. And more worryingly, I don't know if you saw this, but um, after the race, we discovered that a bit of the uh, debris, the winglet from his front wing, flew and hit Gasly right in the visor, went right, right towards his right eye. And Gasly said it was inc- it was very scary. And the, the debris then landed on his lap. And when he got to turn four, he, he threw it out of, out of the cockpit. He said it, it, what was the, the lucky thing for him was that the speeds were so low at that point. But um, obviously, uh, we talk about the halo so much, but it's very easy, as we know, for little pieces of debris to get through to get through through that field. So he's, he's actually very lucky. Yeah, Daniel came on the radio on lap seven and said that um, he, he felt... Uh, there must have been some issue with the front wing. He could, he was struggling with understeer, and they said, "Well, we're going to have to suck it up till the pit stop." So, I, I get that. That obviously that explains some of it. But the reality is, on lap one, I think I'm just looking at your lap chart. Max was um, well, thirteenth, wasn't he? Well, on, on lap, lap three, he was already eleventh, and Daniel wasn't. You know, Daniel was sixteenth. I mean, ultimately, I think probably yeah, Ricardo was held back a bit, but. It's entirely in line with what we've seen. Daniel, driver Ray Heidi, but he's, you know, we know Max has that pace advantage over him, and I'm not sure how enthusiastic Ricardo is at the moment. Maybe if we see Red Bull really in the hunt well, for a win, he might, he might really properly wake up again. But how many drivers have checked out? Do you think <laughs> Alonso? I mean, Alonso came on the. Uh, uh, there was some point where his engineer came on the radio and went. You know, Stroll has got this many overtakes left. He, he told him something about Stroll catching him. And Lonzo came back with, mate, I'm P14. I don't care. <laughs> there, there was a good, after the race, he, because uh, he was asking to come in for some fresh rubber to have a go at fastest lap. And I think he said, oh, the team had a lack of ambition. It's like, well, your ambition is to get a pointless fastest lap with a big tyre advantage. That's not, that's not relevant, is it? It's a real, real shame, isn't it? Yeah, Fernando Alonso, an anonymous 14th. Well, I think we've we've talked through the, the main points of the race. There was some stuff off track this weekend. A few driver moves. Daniel Kvyat confirmed going back to Toro Rosso for next season. That's obviously been telegraphed for a while. Haas confirmed Roman Grosjean. Kevin Magnussen will continue next year. And this is and you should probably add to this because we haven't mentioned this on the podcast before. Antonio Giovinazzi is confirmed at Sauber to partner partner Kimi Raikkonen. So I guess we should quickly sift through those. Kareem Haas driver lineup. It's not not a thrilling announcement, but an understandable one, I'd say. Yeah, none of those is a surprise, really, is it? You know, I think we we all kind of expected all four of those announcements over the last few weeks. The the interesting one is what did Toro Rosso do for the second seat? And have, have you got on the phone to Helmut Marco? You're a former Red Bull junior. Yeah, Red, Red failed Red Bull juniors who've been discredited massively and look like they're all washed up as racing drivers. You know that sort of thing. They're all the rage there now. Yeah, so I should be on the phone to Helmut, really. <laughs> but I think there's a few others ahead of me in the queue. Probably DC and Mark, actually. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm waiting to see what they do for the second seat because they don't seem keen on Van Dorn. And I, I don't think Van Dorn's got any chance. No, and they've obviously said... It's a shame because he should. Yeah, and they've obviously decided that they're not going to deal with Toto for Ocon. So that means whatever happens, we're looking at a rookie coming in and quite probably somebody outside the Red Bull program because none of the Red Bull juniors have enough super license points. Well, it comes to can they get someone like George Russell out well, of Mercedes because yes, yeah. he's a... Yeah. He's a but that's of, again back to dealing with Toto, which yeah, pa- they yeah, don't like exactly, doing. Exactly. Pa- Pascal Verlein's been mentioned as a long-listed yep. driver, but he seems to be heading towards Formula E. He's been testing in a Mahindra Formula E car this week. So. 
Uh, I just want to mention George Russell because he had a, a very good result in Formula 2 this weekend and Lando Norris's championship charge is over. So um, it's a bit of a shame for Lando, uh, but but well done to George. But um, yeah, it's been, a, I don't know if you saw much of the Formula 2 race, but there was a... It's bonkers, yeah. as usual. And, and rain. I think that's the first time we've ever had rain in the five, five times yeah. we've been to Sochi. Seven so, times for you. Seven times for me. <laughs> for Russian specialists. But uh, it'd be interesting to see how... I mean, there's, there's different backstories for all these drivers because regardless of who's in the other tour or so and Brendan Hartley is still a possibility although ultimately he has been outperformed by Pierre Gasly pretty conclusively the pace difference isn't massive but it's always Pierre Gasly's on the right side of it and Brendan Hartley's on the on the sort of wrong side of it is it as it were but Kvyat he he didn't deal with what happened last time very well mentally when he went back to Torosso that the points comparison against Carlos Sainz was 90 points for Sainz eight points for Kvyat in the races they were together during 16 and, and 17 so you know Did, he's quick but he, he's going to have to thrive in an environment he's previously been crushed by to me Helmut has two parallel issues to resolve one is the short term what do you do for the second Torosso seat for next year but the second is bigger picture how does he get back to having Red Bull Juniors in the wings in F2. I mean, you know, when I did GP2, which is now obviously F2 at the time, there was myself, Boemi, Michael Ammermuller, um, all doing, you know, the category just below F1. And he also had Algosari, Vern, Ricciardo, all doing Formula Renault 3.5, all within a sort of two, three-year window. And this year, they haven't really got anyone at that level. Um, so, you know, um, I guess I mean Tictum's kind of the next yeah, but come he, off the he, rank, but he won't qualify for a super license unless I mean. certain organisations sort the rules out for exactly. He hasn't got somebody <laughs> to plug straight in. You know, if if one of the drivers fall on the head, he hasn't got a driver to plug straight in. Even if he does sign two others for next season, um, you know, what 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 do you think are the chances of them signing Mick Schumacher as a young driver? So. He's going to do F2 next year, I believe, probably with Prima, uh, according to Marcus Simmons. That makes perfect sense, yeah. Um, but why not maybe have him in there doing some FP1 sessions? It would seem a logical move. Uh, Helm Marco's been asked about that. In a, will he be an F1 concept? said, no, he's going to be an, F, an F2. But there's every chance Mick Schumacher will win the uh, European F3 title. In fact, he, he should, in the position yep. he's in, beating Dan Tictum to that. Obviously, Tictum had some interesting comments <laughs> made which uh, yeah let's not, not go into that but, 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 I mean, he but could, yeah they, uh, Mick Schumacher is an obvious is an obvious guy. he's the next get him guy to, do, to be picked up get him to do 10 FP1 sessions so he gets a bit of mileage he can do a couple of you know young driver tests and a bit of testing during the season he's racing in F2 you know clearly he's got some ability there um, I think he's you know he's come on really strong throughout the season I mean Jimmy you and I both have friends in the F3 paddock and um, you know, I was just speaking to them a couple of weeks ago, and they say he's he's really, really unlocked the potential of how to use the tire in qualifying. Yeah, he's turned a corner to to use to, to use a motor racing term. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it'll be a great story for F one as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, finally, the other thing, the other team that hasn't got any drivers lined up is is Williams for next year, have they? They're they're yet to confirm what they're going to do. Um, Straw, we, you and I and a couple of others had dinner on Thursday night with um, Sergei Sorokin, didn't we? And um, it wasn't giving anything away, but it, you would have thought it's looking quite good for him next year. 
and Russian motorsport in general. There's um, Artem Markolov, who's he's in Formula Two, and I think he's been looking and trying to see what what can happen as well. So, could we have a, a, a Williams Russian Super Team perhaps next season? I don't know what, what you might have heard. I think everything's possible at the moment. Um, a lot of a lot of Markolov guests here this weekend with trying, yeah. to, trying to build up some uh, some uh, cash behind them. I suspect. Yeah, I, I think you know. There's a lot of rumors and question marks as to who's going to end up there. I think their bigger focus right now is still trying to understand what went wrong this year. I think mm. they're all still in shock a little bit of how this year's car has been so far off the pace. You know, drivers are obviously a very public cog in the wheel, but it's only a cog in the wheel. I think they, the bigger picture is how do they rebuild and regroup after this difficult season. It's amazing, isn't it? to talk about the possibility of three Russian drivers on the grid yeah. while at the Russian Grand Prix when you consider where Russia was kind of starting from in, in, in Formula 1. Sergei it's told us a, a fascinating story about, because um, we were talking earlier about how much Sochi has changed um, in the in the last couple of years. He told uh, an anecdote of when he entered his very first professional kart race in 2005 and it was here. And he said there were potholes in the road, there was um, pigs and cattle roaming roaming around. There was even a parked car on the circuit that they just had to negotiate around. I, I think Sochi... A bit like um, East London, it got really transformed when they had the Olympics, mm. here, didn't they? 2014, when they had the Winter Olympics. From what I gather from speaking to some of the locals here, that was quite a big change in the entire, you know, feel of the city and the infrastructure and the way um, the whole city is developed and and you know big. Big sporting events do do that. It is. Yeah, it's true. And and so uh, the fact that it's changed so much, the fact that you've got two, potentially three Russian drivers and big crowd today. I, mean, I, I think we were chatting about the Russian Touring Car Championship and I think they have they have 10 circuits and seven of them didn't exist 10 years ago. So it's a region that um, is really developing and, and, and is a, in a, in a, in a very important one for, for motor racing in the years to come. And of course, when was the first Russian Grand Prix? Was it 1916? 1913, yes. Yeah, that's in St. Petersburg. They had two races. So there we go. Both won by Benz Machinery. So Benz slash Mercedes Benz have won all of the Russian Yes, Grand they've Prix. won all five, haven't so, they? Uh, so there we go. So, or, uh, or all, how many? Yeah, five plus two, yes. Yeah, so seven. Yeah, seven. Yeah. To wow. match your number of visits. Well, indeed. I look forward to returning next year once I've had all my fingerprints scanned for the visa, which we need to do every single year. Yes, yeah, the visa is always uh, always fun. They're, they're, they're very helpful. I've not, I've no, no they, were, they were brilliant this year. They, they, it was very quick. Did you raise a smile when um, President uh, Vladimir Putin was on the podium listening to the British national anthem to celebrate Lewis's win? Well, I'm not British, so it doesn't clearly have this. It doesn't resonate with me in the same way it does to you. Are you another one of those Welshmen who thinks that you're not British? <laughs> Look, there's enough people out there who are already making the Welsh jokes in my accent. All right, it's just a confused accent. I've lived in England for way too long, but I just I've think hung on to the Indianness. I think it's too many days at Pembroke. That's the it problem. is a lot of days at Pembroke. Actually, I've been back at Anglesey and at Landau Circuit. So I've, uh, yeah, yeah. I've been all over that part of the world in recent times filming for various things. We should get Lando Norris there. Landau at Lando. Lando at Lando. There's an F1 racing feature. There you go. Christmas that's what, special. That's what I'm thinking. There we go. You can look forward to that in an F1 racing magazine near you. 
very, very soon. Well, I think we've probably got to the point that we're talking about Landau, which is a, an extremely unexpected point. That's a, a, we're clutching you know, at straws, you could say. Exactly, exactly. Thankfully, uh, not literally. That would be uh, that would be slightly alarming. But uh, yeah, we should probably bring things to a close now before we go uh, too mad. So thank you very much, Karin Chandok and James Roberts. Uh, My pleasure. And there's all sorts of stuff you could read about the Russian Grand Prix and goings on in Formula 1 and the rest of the world and motorsport on autosport.com. So check that out. Have a look at our plus subscriber area where for a brilliant value modest fee, you can read all the, the great in-depth articles by the world's leading motorsport journalists, plus occasionally ones by lesser mortals such as myself. Pick up Autosport magazine out every Thursday. Next Thursday's issue obviously will be in-depth coverage of the Russian Grand Prix and all sorts of other articles to read in there. And please check out sister titles, motorsport.com and F1 Racing magazine out monthly. And also check out the new pit stop betting for those who fancy a flutter on motorsport. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.